This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. to Primal Screen, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and joining me in the virtual studio is Sally Christie. Hello, Flick. Hello, Sal. And Paul Anthony Nelson. Hey, Paul. Hey, Flick. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you both for joining me. We're going to be uh, relocating to a sprawling manor house in the British countryside for Sean Durkin's moody marital drama, The Nest. We'll magic our way back to Sydney in the 50s and cast some spells in Sonia Bible's The Witch of King's Cross, a recent documentary about bohemian artist Rosaline Norton. And Sonia herself will be joining us in the virtual studio very, very soon for a deeper dive into how her film came about and the many myths and legends that surround Rosaline Norton. Uh, But first, it's time for the news. Uh, Award-winning actor Christopher Plummer has died after an accident aged 91. Plummer was at his home in Connecticut. According to his wife, Elaine Taylor, the cause of death was a blow to the head caused by an accidental fall. Born in Toronto in 1929 and raised in Montreal, Plummer went on to become a prolific actor on both stage and screen. He won an Oscar for his role as Hal Fields in the 2010 film Beginners, which at the time made him the oldest Oscar recipient in history. He is considered among the greatest Shakespearean actors of his generation, best known as Captain George Von Trapp in The Sound of Music. Plummer continued to appear on screen. Um, most recently in Harlan Thrombey's 2019 film Knives Out and Todd Robinson's war drama The Last Full Measure from the same year. Um, Paul, I know you were quite upset about, about this as well. Oh, yeah, you know, I mean, 91's a hell of an innings. I mean, I'm I know. Like, it's, you know, so, you know, if people have got to die, then, you know, and their 90s is pretty good. I, I'm shocked about the below to the head and the fall. I, yeah, I heard yeah, him die quietly in his sleep. Either. Yeah. That I, was what I, was being reported initially yeah I um I was pretty surprised as well because yeah like you were saying when someone's 90 you're kind of like okay maybe natural natural causes um yeah that was what I got from the Guardian so that was my (laughs) news source but um yeah quite shocking um we also I feel like this has turned into a bit of a a death roll unfortunately it was quite a week (laughs) Mm. yeah so we we also saw documentary filmmaker uh, Jeremy Newson um, pass away aged 73 following a long battle with motor neuron disease. Uh, Newson uh, is best known for his BBC television series on the fashion, music and entertainment industries, The Look from 1992, uh, Music Biz from 1995 and The Entertainment Business from 1998. We also had actor Hal Holbrook die aged 95 um, he had a really long and prolific TV and film career with an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor for Into the Wild, which was that 2007 film. Um, but he's 
best known for um, actually uh, his characterization of Mark Twain. Um, apparently, according to his own account, he played Twain more than two thousand times, which is kind of amazing. Jeez. I wonder if it's like when you're when you're playing the same character for that amount of time, whether you just become that person on some level. And I wonder if like Val Kilmer is coming for his record. <laughs> Val Kilmer is obsessed with playing Mark Twain. He's done it the last few years. So yeah, yeah. What's this space? But yeah, no, for the, sure. Hell Holbrook was was great. I think. Yeah, the uh, Creep Show is my favorite. Uh, I, I was going to say that's my my favorite performance of his as well. Is Creep Show? I love him in that that section. It's fantastic. So, hey Barbara, and uh, and uh, my favorite plumber has to be a Canadian thriller called The Silent Partner. In which he's a very that. diabolical. Um, I haven't thief. seen it either. You know, I just I, two weeks ago I watched Knives Out for the first time. <gasps> How good is it? I loved it. Incredible. Because that was yeah. was that a Boxing Day release? That that's why we perhaps didn't cover it on the show. Or it was like late November. It was right yeah. before. Yeah. So kind of when we we're at our you know best of for the year and that sort of thing. But um, mm. yeah, I watched it with my mum a couple of weeks ago, and geez, it was good. I was so impressed with it. It was it's excellent. So- yeah, it's so clever, isn't it? I had so much fun watching it. Um, yeah, highly recommend Knives Out if you haven't already seen it. And also just a great reason when we get, you know, announcements like this is to go back and, and go through that, that um, you know, previous roles and, and all the work that these people have done. So that would be my recommendation. Um, and one last announcement that isn't death-related. Um, here in Melbourne, M Pavilion has joined forces with Rooftop Cinema to present Topless Cinema, which is a free film program that kicked off on February 4 and will run until the 25th of March. Uh, The program features films such as The Love Witch, which is screening this Thursday, and the recent Australian release Baby Teeth um, next Thursday. For a full program and to register your place, head to mpavilion.org. I did notice that many of the sessions have um, booked out, so you better get in quick for that. Anyway, for tonight's show, we will be reviewing Sonia Bible's recent documentary, The Witch of King's Cross, about a controversial artist from Sydney's art scene in the 1950s. The subject is Rosalie Norton, who hit the, te- hit the headlines <laughs> with allegations of satanic rituals, obscene art and sex orgies. Told in her own words, the film weaves stylized drama and erotic dances with never-before-seen artworks, diaries and scrapbooks. And joining us in the virtual studio is the writer, producer and director of The Witch of King's Cross, Sonia Bible, who's just presented her documentary at a special screening at Palace Central Cinemas in Sydney. Thanks so much for joining us, Sonia. Good evening and thanks so much for having me on your show. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. Um, Sonia, so your first film, Recipe for Murder, was about women who poisoned their husbands with rat poison in Sydney in the 50s and you're returning back to this time and place to tell the story of Rosaline Norton. Um, Can you tell us what first inspired you to tell this story? Um, So when I was making Recipe for Murder, I was doing a lot of research in the tabloid magazines and kind of like bizarre true crime books and things like that. And little stories about Rosaline just kept popping up and I sort of started a little folder and um, I put it aside for a while, but it, it kept kind of haunting me and coming back and saying, you know, pay me attention, make me. <laughs> so yeah, at a certain point I, I, um, I um, surrendered and started making the film. 
Yeah, um, it's interesting. Oh, sorry. Go, Sal. No, I was just going to say, I'm, Rosalie Norton's life is its so fascinating on so many levels. I think God, when I first heard of her when I was a teenager, I just became really obsessed with her. And, like, it, her her life really has everything that audiences love. We've got sex scandals, the occult, and, of course, her sense of humour and her incredible art. Um I'm wondering, Sonia, why your opinion on why you think that she went from being such a highly publicised figure in Australia to being almost forgotten and why it's taken so long for somebody to tell her story on the screen? Um, I think um, for starters it's it's not easy telling stories of um, historical women uh, who are a bit naughty, mm. um, It's it, especially in documentary. Uh, we have a poor track record. Uh, less than 10% of history films are about women. Uh, and then there's an expectation that if you're going to make a history film about a woman that she's got to be sort of, you know, an Anzac nurse or a nun saving people. It, there's a very different kind of rules um, for women in history. So that's one of the reasons. Um, I think another one of the reasons is that uh, Rosalind was very scandalous and notorious in Australia and she was more known for being um, outrageous mm. and she wasn't really, her art wasn't really taken seriously in this country, so it was kind of overlooked. Um, so she was just sort of put down as one of those eccentric characters in history. But when you go back and you look at the work and you look at the art that she did and you look at her intellect and the kind of the level of her, her writing, she was a writer and a poet and all these amazing things, that here's a really intelligent and talented woman that needs to be re-examined. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely agree. Do you... Do you know what happened to a lot of her artwork? I know that um, obviously some of it was destroyed, but, um, I mean, is there the hope that perhaps some of this will be displayed now that we've kind of got her back in the spotlight? Um, I hope so. A, a lot of it's in private collections. So some of the big works are actually owned by people in the United States. Um I documented a couple of major private collections that are actually in Australia um, and, you know, people own the work. They, they, it's very precious to them and, you know, they're quite worried about um, sort of what might happen to it if it's going to be displayed. But I hope that the film raises the profile enough for, for one of the major galleries to be, you know, inspired to put on, on um, an exhibition because there's, it's not just the work, it's all the writings and the poetry and the theories, um, letters, there's all sorts of um, material that could be displayed. Yeah, I really, I really hope so too. Um, just going back to what you were saying before about, I guess, the way that women are sort of represented sometimes, especially in Australian cinema, your previous films, um, Recipe for Murder and Muriel Matters, um, and, of course, The Witch of King's Cross, you really seem to focus on um, stories where women uh, are misfits. What really compels you to tell these stories? Um, well, I think it's uh, just something that is is underrepresented and um, I studied screenwriting uh, at UTS and what, so what I'm looking for in a story is a is a character that has motivation and that there's all these turning points in their life um, that follows a kind of hero's journey. Um, 
that you can make into a compelling film. And that's that's what I found in these stories. And um, and I, I just have a personal interest in seeing uh, women characters uh, as as the main character, as the protagonist. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Um, I I was reading that you spent was it seven years making The Witch of King's Cross. What was perhaps the most difficult part for you for get to get this documentary up and running? Um, so when I started making it, um, we we uncovered people who knew her and lived with her, and they were on the edge of living memory. People were quite elderly or unwell, yep. so we started doing the interviews straight away. And I always I always thought that. There's, it's a great story and I knew that people really wanted to see it. So I always believed that, you know, I would find a broadcaster or I'd find the funding, but I just never did. Yeah. <laughs> so I, 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 like, I, didn't, I didn't know that that was going to happen when I started out. I just was like, oh, this is a great story and, and um, how, could, how could you say no? I mean, it's mm. got, you know, sex magic and scandal and famous people and everything. Yeah. It's like... What is there not to love? So I was pretty surprised over the years that I, that I kept getting knocked back. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, yeah, yeah. and then after a while I just kind of, when I discovered those private collections, it was a couple of years in, it was kind of the point of no return. I, I just couldn't stop then. It was like I felt responsible. I thought if I don't finish this film, this stuff may never be seen. So I felt like I was documenting a really important part of Australian history mm. and I, I just had to keep going. And I, I still believed then that it was going to get financed and it just never did. <laughs> yeah, I, I, again, I would assume the same thing, that it's something that people would want to see, that, you know, it would happen quickly. But was it really difficult to get the archival footage that uh, you managed to get your hands on? Um, yeah, well, that just took the the usual kind of amount of research. There was one piece of archive that came from Channel Seven that was particularly difficult to find. Um, it took it took a while and uh, quite a lot of um, persistence for me to uncover that. So that's never been seen before. That's in the film. There's black and white footage of her in her house. Um, but yeah, the the archive footage not not so difficult. The artworks and the the personal mementos much more difficult. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's amazing that you're saying that you discovered some new artwork really recently as well. Like, where was it? Twenty fifteen. Yeah, that's right. So yeah. some of the some of these private collections that we documented, um, some of the people who are quite experts at her artwork and that know a lot about her work, have never seen these paintings. Wow. And so they're in the film and so people can see the film and it's like a moving exhibition. So we've we've tried to really um, show the artworks in a way that you can really um, get immersed in them. Um, there's some sort of animation on some of the artworks to try and draw you in um, and to see how incredible some of the detail is in the work. Yeah, amazing. Well, Sorry, go, Sam. Yeah, with your approach to how you've constructed the documentary where it's, uh, I guess, we've, we do have that um, mix of animation, there is also choreographed dance and, you know, archival footage, talking heads in there. What made you kind of decide to put everything together that way? What was the sort of creative decision behind that? Well, um, 
basically when when I uncovered a lot of her writings, that was a game changer. And I really wanted the to include her philosophies and it not just be one of those documentaries where historians talk about her and go blah, 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 and you show a photo. Um, I, like I wanted the audience to experience like some of the things that she's talking about. And so in her in her belief system, she would go into trances and go into these altered states and she would meet the gods and goddesses in these trance states and that's what she based her paintings on. So for me to get that across to an audience in a film medium, I decided to cast dancers as three of the gods and goddesses, Pan, Lilith and Lucifer, and sort of portray that world as, as if, you know, there she is with the gods and goddesses on this kind of mythical stage. Um, the other reason for the mythical stage is she was a performer. Like mm. she was very, she very much had a public persona and a private persona. And so the idea of is that it's like her life as performance art. So it all just came together for me. It seemed like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get dancers and they're going to be sexy and there's going to be this mad stage. And so just to really give the audience, to make them feel something. And I also wanted it to be erotic I mean, she was she was a very sexual woman, and she was being arrested because of her artwork being too sexy. But to modern day audiences, they look at the art and they go, "Yeah, big deal. It's not sexy at all." So having these beautiful, sexy dances and these kind of quite erotic scenes um, it was really important again for me for the audience to have an experience. Mm. Yeah, watching the documentary, it made me. It's interesting you sort of talking about her sexuality. It made me think about media, I guess, now and women and how their sexuality is portrayed. So if we're looking at, um, you know, Rosalind Norton in their 50s, she, like the media really crucified her. It was really brutal. And it's sort of really largely put down to our society being more conservative. But I feel like we still really see women in the media like Monica Lewinsky, Anna Nicole Smith, Amy Winehouse, anybody that is kind of that non-conformist um, still being really crucified in the media. Uh, do you think that there has been a big change from what it was then to now? Um, there's certainly been a change from then to now but not enough. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And, and, I mean, that's why I am interested in mid-20th century history because reflecting on history is we put a mirror up to ourselves now in a way like that that period in the 50s was a time of great social change and there was a lot of change in the relationships between men and women. That's what Recipe for Murder was about. That's what The Witch of King's Cross was about. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of gender politics. Um, and I think we're we're living now in also a time of great change, but we can't we can't study ourselves because we're in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and maybe people will be studying us in forty years' time. They probably will, like the the <laughs> pandemic generation or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think it's important to I think it helps us put a mirror up to ourselves now because you you see things that happened in the 1950s and you go, that was terrible, or the way that she was censored. Well, censorship happens now too. People are very reactive and they say ban this and ban that. So, like, well, you know, have it, hang on, think about it. Um, and also the way that, you know, women are, have, are being expected of a different set of standards. Mm-hmm. 
um, you know, they're, they're not allowed to be this, this fear of women's sexuality is, is really interesting, I think. Mm, absolutely. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You're tuned into Primal Screen on Triple R with Paul Anthony Nelson, Sally Christie, and myself, Flick Ford. Um, but it is indeed the season of The Witch here at Primal Screen. At the start of the show, we spoke with writer, director, and producer Sonia Bible about her documentary, The Witch of King's Cross, which is our first film of the night. Light's Black Majesty, Midnight Sun. Lord of the wild and living stars. Soul of magic and master of death. Panther of night, enfold me. Sonia Bible's documentary, The Witch of King's Cross, details the life and career of New Zealand-born artist Rosaline Norton. Set in Sydney in the 1950s, the documentary uses recently discovered art collections, diaries and notebooks to conjure a woman persecuted for her fascination with witchcraft the occult and sexual pleasure. The film is the debut feature from Bible, who we spoke to just prior to the break. Sally, as soon as I heard that strong women, witches and the occult were occult were um, involved, um, my first thought was Sally Christie. <laughs> <laughs> I've, been, I've been actually really excited about this documentary for a long time. I um I really love Rosalie Norton's work and I have since I was a teenager in the 90s and I read a chapter chapter about her in a Fiona Horn book. That was oh. very, very 90s of me. <laughs> so that's how I, I kind of discovered her and her work. And I, I found her life story just so compelling. And, um, you know, what Sonia was saying in the interview prior to this, such an important piece of Australian history. And I guess looking at the way that she was, you know, treated as a woman, as an artist, um, you know, for and also for uh, her socioeconomic status as well, for the mm. way that she was treated for that, um, I, I found just so shocking. Um, and just also I, I love her artwork. So I'm so glad that, you know, her story is out there. It's it, I find it interesting that she's not more sort of well-known or well-regarded. We have um, the wonderful... Farley Myers, who is, I guess, kind of Melbourne's, you know, sort of occult yeah. artist. Um, but, you know, Varley's really loved and rightfully so. And I think it would be nice if um, Rosalie Norton sort of got that same status because she was an incredibly talented woman. And, um, yeah, it, it is really great that, you know, her story is being brought to a bigger audience because, yeah, resources and, you know, I've tried to research her before and things like that, and it's there's not a lot out there about her. So yeah, it's good that it's yeah. That's what I was wondering. I was wondering, is there yeah, is it is is it is there stuff out there that's kind of readily accessible, but we just haven't been looking, or is it like literally she's just undercut? A little. Um, one of the main talking heads in the doco, um, Nigel Neal. I'm going to forget his name now. Has written a book uh, which is called uh, The Daughter of Pan. And that's, I guess, it, he's her biographer. So that's, I think, probably the seminal text that is around on Rosalie Norton. Mm -hmm. um, that's all I have sort of been able to get my hands on in the past. There is quite a bit of um, footage of her on YouTube, some really great footage oh, wow. as well of her talking um, about 
that, uh, you know, being a witch and doing that kind of cheeky thing where she's wearing her witch's hat and playing things up <laughs> for the camera. Mm. So there is some archival footage that, yeah, is available on the internet, but there's not a whole heap. Mm. Yeah, Um like how you said, Nigel O'Neill, as opposed to Quatermass Experiment and Stone Tape writer Nigel Neal. Um, <laughs> um, but, yeah, I yeah, I hadn't heard of Rosalind Norton before this, which is, you know, kind of the point of a doco like this really mm. is to uh, lead us in these directions and, and teach us of, uh, of these people who, who deserve wider exposure. Um I kind of wish she was around more active in the 70s because I feel like she would have decorated some rad vans. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> some panel vans. We've had some amazing Rosalie Norton um, artwork. Um, yeah, clearly uh, uh, lived a heck of a life and 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 fascinating point of view, obviously. Um, yeah, she was into, uh, as, as Sonia said in the interview, some um, things like uh, Alistair Crowley's sex magic philosophy and and uh pagan pagan gods and plant particularly pan and um yeah and and so it's definitely an interesting story i do wish i liked the execution more um i i know like i hearing sonia speak i absolutely know feel for what she was going for in terms of wanting us to experience that feeling and not just have talking heads talk to us because i agree that's boring as well unless the talking heads are particularly lively um you know not every not every documentary can have john waters or john landis i feel like <laughs> most do have john waters though really. <laughs> they probably <laughs> should have got yeah, john waters everything. for this he's probably a fan <laughs> of course he would, yeah. i feel like that's a missed opportunity yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but uh yeah and so it does so they've these uh recreations these dramatized reenactments have been and some of them are fantasy reenactments um and i liked what was going on with the uh the anim you know animating some of the pictures and and and, and getting into the detail of the artwork i thought that stuff was really good but yeah i i just didn't think the, the reenactments and the chore mm. the dance sequences were yeah. for me want, it just yeah. kept pulling me out of it yeah and i wonder whether it's just that huge um challenge of bringing together what was obviously like years and years of research like there's obviously so much work that's gone into that and trying to bring it to the screen i also wasn't familiar um with rosalie norton so this was my kind of my first um i suppose entry point um yeah but i agree what you're saying um paul about the execution i, I mean i think that's maybe maybe listeners who are familiar with her artwork may have um may have a different experience though um yeah I could see that there was you know so much um you know the people who are familiar with um the all of the symbolism behind it do get like a good introduction into that yes um I think for me I thought I wasn't actually um I think I was more just interested in how the way in which her sexuality and like bisexuality in the 50s and 50s Australia, I think I wanted more of a contrast to what that was actually like in what Australia in the 50s and particularly Sydney in the in the 50s mm. was like um, as a comparison. Um, but, yeah, anyway, I think um, it's just one of those things where it's just such a, such a complex subject and such a fascinating character at the core that it might be difficult sometimes bringing that all together um but the witch of king's cross directed by sonia bible is screening worldwide on amazon itunes vimeo and google play you're listening to primal screen on triple r 
Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Paul Anthony Nelson and myself, Flick Ford. The Nest is the second feature-length film from director Sean Durkin, whose debut feature, Martha Marcy May Marlene, received critical acclaim. Jude Law is Rory, an ambitious entrepreneur who brings his American wife Alison, played by Carrie Coon, and kids Sam and Ben to his native country, England, to explore new business opportunities. After abandoning the sanctuary of their safe American suburban surroundings, the family is plunged into despair of an archaic 80s Britain and their unaffordable new life in an English manor house threatens to destroy the family. Paul, I know you're a big fan of Durkin's 2011 film Martha Marcy May Marlene. Um, how did you find this one? Just We've seen three US presidents serve in office in the time between he unleashed Martha Marcy May Marlene and this release. And in that time, all he's made is an excellent British miniseries called Southcliffe. So Martha Marcy May Marlene was one of those films I saw at MIF in 2011. And it was one of those films where I sat at the end of it, I think I was like, like breathing at a different register. Like it was like (laughs) at the end of it. And I thought it was so stunning and raved to everybody within, within shouting distance. So I've been waiting for Durkin's next film um, in, with a lot of anticipation. And I've, honestly, I don't know what the holdup has been, but um, not he's been producing films, but he's been MIA until now. And I've got to say, not only it's great to have him back, but he has not lost a step. He's not lost any of his bite, any of his ability to weave an atmosphere of pure dread or his gift for observation, particularly when it comes to male and female power dynamics. Um, mm. Just like Martha Marcy May Marlene had that between um, Elizabeth Olsen and John Hawkes' cult leader. This with Carrie Coon's, um, you know, wife who's suddenly, you know, uprooted from America and brought to brought to England in this cavernous manner. And, and essentially it's, it's, it's the story of a family who are uh, crumbling under the weight of their patriarch's hyper-capitalist hubris. Mm. And, yeah. oh, my God, this is such, like, it's um, it's not only uh, it's uh, it's not only a thumper of a showcase for Carrie Coon. Like, I think... She's wonderful. <laughs> any justice, she'd be nominated for everything. Like, why yes. isn't she in Oscar conversations? Like, I yeah. think she's note perfect like yeah there's times when she's slowly reacting to things and all that thing they tell you in acting about you know going in with an intention and then listening to the other actors and then have that you know that you're seeing the intention be dismantled like mm. just a master class in that just watching her smoke a cigarette every time <laughs> the cigarettes come out in this film <laughs> i was delighted i don't um, even smoke but i wanted to at the end of this film. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i don't know if that's a recommendation or, <laughs> or what <laughs> <laughs> and and Jude Law is just as good. Like Jude Law is fantastic. He's got that channeling that that sort of flash Harry Graft mm. charisma and also this kind of bruised childlike petulance mm. whenever he gets whenever it all sort of comes undone. And he's this sort of living, thriving symbol of of capitalism, really, but particularly Reagan era 80s, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstrap style, but very, <laughs> you know, very pertinent to now. Um yeah, I just I loved the whole dynamic of the family. It felt very realistic. I loved the kids were good kids. 
You know, like they had their moments of acting out, but they're basically really good. Um, they're actually humans, like fully yeah, fledged characters. Absolutely, which you don't always see. <laughs> no, and and I just yeah, and lastly, I, I just got to say, and I love that in true Durkin style, just like Martha Marcy, May Marlene, he shoots this like a horror movie, mm. and it's shot in these beautiful shadowy Gordon Willis style tones, and this dread, and you're just you're waiting for this horrifying moment to kick in, and I won't spoil anything, but. But needless to say, it avoids melodrama. And I just, yeah, I, look, I am I made a big call at the end of January last year with The Lighthouse, and I don't think, I'm not sure this one will be so dominant, but right now this is my clubhouse leader for best film of the year so far. I think it's <laughs> February, am- Paul, February. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen. The Promising Young Woman was last year for me. I'm just going to say that. Okay. Sorry. I haven't seen um, Sean Durkin's first film. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, I haven't seen it, so I've got to. So I went into this um really knowing nothing about it except that Jude Law was in it. That was kind of, that's all I knew. Um, and, oh, my God, this movie, I lost my mind over it. It is so, so good. It took me a little while to warm up to it, but, of course, you know, that's the intention, that's the pacing of it. Um, and it's interesting, Paul, that you're saying that it's shot like a horror movie because, I, like I said, I went into this not knowing anything about it and I kept expecting that it was going to turn into a horror movie and there was um, somebody in the cinema afterwards saying to a friend, oh, I kept thinking that it was going to become a horror movie and I can't watch horror so I was going to leave. But it's so it was incredible the way that that was kind of put forward and, you mm. know, this sort of tension and this release from it and then a build-up of it again. Um but I thought this was absolutely phenomenal. Like I, I just, I, I can't rave about it enough. Um, one thing I didn't realise because, like I said, didn't know anything about it, that it was set in the 80s until the first shot in the daughter's room and she was listening, uh, there was a Cure poster and she was listening to Thompson Twins. And I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense because I was like, they're bringing cigarette smoking back in this movie. <laughs> I was like, and so like little signifiers like that smoking in the office yeah i was like oh okay all right but um yeah it was so great it's really reminded me uh that story of um that american uh guy in the 70s i think yeah john list who do you guys know the story of john list this was like kind of i felt he was a, a guy in the 70s who was really big on the american dream he bought a dilapidated mansion that he couldn't afford with his his son, stepdaughter and overbearing wife and he ended up killing them all. And um, then he wasn't found by the police for I think 19 years afterwards. He went and kind of lived a full life. And so this was, I, I really feel this that was. Is, um, have we looked into whether this that's actually an influence on this? I, I, when I came away from it, I thought it, it has to be um, because it, the, there was this sort of the emphasis with uh, John, the John List story was that was the American dream gone wrong. And that mm. was, you know, kind of a conversation happening in this too. But, yeah, mm. lots of similarities that I think maybe yeah. Sean Durkin had, you know, taken inspiration from that. I was, but, yeah, yeah, phenomenal film. Loved it. I was I was listening to an interview with Durkin um, just the other day and he, uh, one of the person um, hosting the Q&A was asking him whether he was inspired at all by the literature of Richard Yates and that's exactly oh, the yeah. author I thought of straight away. So I was really glad to to hear what he, you know, whether that was some sort of inspiration. Apparently he hadn't read Richard Yates at all, which is a bit <laughs> disappointing, but I, I think I... Has he seen this- Revolutionary Road? <laughs> yeah, 
which is is actually a really perfect adaptation of Yates's work. So yeah, mm. I think that this is a, that would be a really great comparison film to this. Um, yeah, The Nest. I saw the trailer and was immediately hooked. I was very excited that we were going to be talking about it tonight. Um, it's interesting that the that punter in the cinema didn't didn't think that they could. Um, cope with a horror but was fine with dealing with this. I know. There is a real horror to the way in yeah. which these people talk to one another. And I, yep. I think it it's is. It's an everyday horror film. Say that again? It's an everyday horror film. Like, yeah. Yeah, just, yeah mm. precisely. And I think there was something really remarkable about the fact that they didn't. Durkin really was quite restrained and the performances have have so much depth and complexity to them where they don't just attack one another. There is moments of sensuality, eroticism and warmth between them. So you you get a sense of a fully fledged history together, which I think is always remarkable to be able to have on screen. I completely agree with you, Paul, about Coon's performance. Like honestly, just the standout. I mean Luke her and anything else. Yeah, I I the last yeah, Gone yeah. Girl, which I think was oh, a yeah, yeah. thankless role, really. Like, but I don't she kind of stood out though. Like, she kind of made something of it. Like, you know, yeah. like, was... I, yeah, I don't remember loving her. Well, I don't remember her performance that much. Wow. In Gone Girl, yeah, because one might... of the things I came out liking the most about it. Oh, okay. But for this, I think mm-hmm. Coon's performance oh. in the Nest is got to be one of the top. Um, and Laura and Coon are perfectly balanced. There's there's a real. Um, perfect pairing between them is really meeting one another in this emotional complexity of the film and and similar to what you're saying Paul about the the child actors they're really really fantastic as well this film though is really fascinating with how it it sort of tiptoes that line between horror like you were saying Sal and the horror of the everyday mm. i loved the fact and again not to create any spoilers but it's got this real creeping sinister quality to it yeah it but yet the visual field and the framing and the lighting is all super warm so there's this wonderful um contrast there in what we're seeing on screen but also the the kind of atmosphere that it brings out and there's moments of lightness and moments of humor as well like I definitely had a bit of a chuckle at some of the scenes and some of the exchanges between them so um yeah remarkably complex film and lots to lots to kind of unpack as well yeah there's definitely a dry wit throughout mm, the whole film absolutely and and yeah. yeah it's very it's one of those films like my partner and i spent i think about an hour the next day just talking through it like yes. bits and there's yeah. so much to dig into and and little interactions like particularly when they first get to the uk and he immediately starts trying to re-establish himself as this alpha that he wasn't yeah. in america yeah it's like to fit in and little things like you know they get out of the car it's like i want to show you off and he slaps her on the button mm. and she slaps him and she's constantly taking the power back yeah and it's yeah. super fascinating to watch there's, There's a, a bedroom scene where that happens as well. Which yeah. Is Actually, I was thinking of a dinner scene in which um, what she decides to order is a bit of a oh. play. <laughs> <laughs> so good, that moment. I thought that was exceptional. Actually, one thing, and this is perhaps what got me into the space of thinking of a little literary comparison was the script is razor sharp like mm, there is, is not one empty word in that mm. in that film it's really remarkable um there's not a huge amount of dialogue but every piece is is perfectly placed um yeah that really stuck with me and particularly in those interactions where you see it brought to the fore um really remarkable mm. um and also great soundtrack yeah amazing soundtrack <laughs> banging 80s Incredible. soundtrack yep. yeah um i love the fact sell after that scene you mentioned when she's listening to the thompson twins with the cure poster 
she gets up from her bed and hits record and play on the radio to record the song that's about to play yes. on the radio. They gave me lots of eighties feels. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. This, but this show, this film also has my favorite closing line I've heard in a movie in months. We won't ruin it for you because I feel like it might. But I agree. No, absolutely. Yeah, don't reveal. Yeah, but yeah it's I think perfect. that there's something about how. This film manages to tie it all up in a way that I won't. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's I think one of the best sort very of clever. One of the best climaxes I've seen in a film in a very, very, very long time. Yeah. It's so intelligent, so incredibly put together. And also, also as a as a horse fan, I was um, both delighted, but also had a bit of a cry during this film. Yeah. <laughs> but um, anyway, um, so that was, of course. The Nest, directed by Sean Durkin, which is now screening at all independent and major cinemas. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Paul Anthony Nelson, Sally Christie and myself, Flick Ford. We reviewed The Witch of King's Cross and spoke with writer, producer and director Sonia Bible. Her dog documentary The Witch of King's Cross is screening worldwide on Amazon, iTunes, Vimeo and Google Play from tomorrow. We also reviewed Sean Durkin's moody marital drama The Nest which is currently showing at all independent and major cinemas. You can listen back to the show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand or check out the songs we played on the Primal Screen page at rrr.org.au right now. You can also subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you get your favourite podcasts. Next week, we're going to get smashed with Maz Mikkelsen in Thomas Vinterberg's boozy comedy, Another Round. We'll follow a Korean-American family who moved to a rural farm in search of the American dream in Lee Isaac Chung's film Minari. A big thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast and to Carl Chapman for panelling and providing producing assistance. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 